From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department may consider cutting its COVID-19 quarantine time. Defense Secretary Mark Esper says the department's looking at cutting its isolation requirement from 14 days to 10, quote, very seriously. FCW reports Esper says he's consulting with Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease on any policy changes the Pentagon makes. Karen Evans is headed back to government. Sources on Capitol Hill and in industry tell Federal News Network President Trump will announce her selection to be the next chief information officer at the Department of Homeland Security. Evans was the first assistant secretary of energy for cybersecurity, energy security, and emergency response. She was eGov administrator at the Office of Management and Budget in the George W. Bush administration. The House Oversight and Government Reform Subcommittee on Government Operations is getting involved in changes at the Thrift Savings Plan. Subcommittee Chairman Jerry Connolly tells Labor Secretary Eugene Scalia he wants all the documents about a change in the international fund the TSP board delayed. GovExec reports the board's original plan was to move the iFund to a product that invests more heavily in China. Federal agencies are taking a risk management approach to bringing employees back to the office. It's only the latest way that agencies are applying a risk management framework to the problems they face. Dave Mader is Civilian Sector Chief Strategy Officer at Deloitte, former controller at the Office of Management and Budget. Cynthia Vitters is Managing Director of Risk and Financial Advisory at Deloitte. Thanks both very much for coming on. Cynthia, what's your sense of how the trajectory has been, the evolution has been, for the use of a risk management framework to solve problems in the federal government? Yeah, so since OMB Circular A123 was issued four years ago, we've seen some really great advancement in the use of enterprise risk management concepts and principles to identify risks, help to mitigate them and assess them. And we've also seen that, you know, not only have agencies adopted this approach and made great progress, but they've even started to take steps to advance it beyond the basics by creating and using risk appetite and tolerance, using greater buy-in across agency leadership, um, and also integrating ERM with other key management functions across the organization. Dave, you did this. Circular A123, the update in 2016 was your baby. What's your satisfaction level with what agencies have done at kind of fulfilling the spirit that you envisioned and doing what Cynthia suggested and kind of taking it beyond the letter of the circular? Francis, I, I, I'm really pleased with the progress that agencies made over the last years. And as you mentioned, I think we're right now moving to the next phase, which is how do we take the practices that we built and ensure that they're embedded in the manage their organization each and every day and be able to use the criteria to the missions of each of those Cynthia, what, there are five steps that you, the Deloitte and the Partnership for Public Service have come up with to advise agencies on how to move forward. The first of those steps is push, don't just pull risk information. What does that mean? Yeah, so what that means is getting beyond a place where 
you're going into an organization or meeting with key leaders and saying, hey, what keeps you up at night? It's getting to a place where risk leaders are now saying, hey, did you think about this as an emerging risk? You know, and really being proactive about bringing risk issues to the table and helping people to think very proactively about what could happen next and what a better time than now to be thinking that way. Dave, the second item on the list is increasing the use of data and analytics. This is something agencies have really taken the uh, ball and run with already, right? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the basic frameworks are in place now. What we want to do, and I think there's emphasis going forward on taking the mission data and the budget data and the strategic planning data, bringing that together so that agency leaders, both at the political level and at the career level, both have the broadest insight into implementation and what is it going to take from a budget standpoint and what are the risks that are inherent in moving out and expanding existing programs. Cynthia, item three is using ERM to strengthen response and future risk preparedness. This sounds like what you're suggesting is agencies should use ERM frameworks to get ahead of the ball so they're not playing uh, defense or not acting reflexively the next time something big happens. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, again, no better time than now to think not only about what are the risks that your organization is facing to achieving its goals and objectives, but how well prepared are you to respond to those risks? You know, thinking about the current COVID-19 environment, this is top of mind to everyone. How well prepared were we or are we to respond? So, you know, this is about thinking about doing things just beyond even documenting what your mitigation strategies are, but developing scenario-based contingency planning, and again, really testing the overall effectiveness of the response plans that you have in place. The fourth item, Dave, is integrating ERM at both the enterprise and program levels. What's your sense of how agencies are doing at that piece of it, at, especially at the program level? I think it depends on the particular department. Uh, we've seen some departments that have taken the program and driven it down through the bureau in the sub-agency level. We see other departments that are beginning to explore how to do that at the bureau level and bring it back up again to the enterprise level so that key decision makers can look at perspective across a, a department, not in a particular program. Um, Cynthia, the last one on the list is using risk profiles to assist with transitions. And at this point in any administration, I start to think about transition as from one to another potentially. Am I thinking about it right or are you referring to other different kinds of transitions? You're thinking about it exactly right. And, you know, it's it's using a risk profile to aid in, in transition. It could be amongst leaders within an agency. Um, it could be across, you know, uh, an entire political system, the whole federal government. And, you know, I think this one has, it's one of my favorite recommendations in this report because it does get back to concepts that we thought about and talked about as we were drafting the circular. And it was around, you know, think about how, um, forward thinking it would be to be able to use a risk profile, which is an inventory of the most significant risks that an organization faces, you know, how those risks are assessed and how well prepared we are to respond to those as the front page of a briefing book um, as we did go through political transitions. It's a nonpartisan view of, you know, kind of a current state of 
of an agency, um, and it could be a really powerful tool. And so we are recommending right now at this juncture in time to think about, you know, leveraging these the, the use of this business process of enterprise risk management to really, really continue to aid government in transitions, um, better operations and working better. Cynthia and Dave, a lot more I'd like to cover, but we're out of time. Thanks very much for coming on. It's great to have you. Thank you, Francis. Thank you. Up next, renegotiating NAFTA, straight ahead on Government Matters, working with all the stakeholders to get the deal done. The new United States-Mexico-Canada Free Trade Agreement is the result of lengthy trade negotiations. People from the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative who arranged the deal coordinated the effort with more than a thousand people. John Melly served as Assistant U.S. Trade Representative for the Western Hemisphere at the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative. He and colleague Maria Pagan are finalists for a Service to America Medal in the Safety, Security and International Affairs category. John, welcome. Congratulations to you and Maria. Tell me about your role, both of your roles, in negotiating the USMCA. It really was a team effort. As you mentioned, there are a thousand people involved. About 350 of those are U.S. government officials from all of the agencies that have an economic role in the U.S. economy, which is quite a number of agencies. So we were asked to renegotiate an old agreement, the North American Free Trade Agreement, which has been in place for 25 years. And so we went about structuring the negotiations, choosing the negotiators, uh, making arrangements with Mexico and Canada to conduct the negotiations. Uh, we began by meeting every third week. And again, several hundred officials would congregate in one or the other of the countries involved uh, to go through the procedures, the proposals that we were making in 30, what ended up being 34 different chapters in the agreement that runs over 2,000 pages. You obviously had political considerations, and I'm less interested in those than I am in the diplomatic and the economic considerations that you had to take into account when you were building your team and then when you were interacting with the teams from Canada and Mexico. What were some of the bigger diplomatic and economic considerations that were on your plate as you went through that process, John? Well, the first consideration is this is the first time that we've renegotiated agreement. As I mentioned, we had the NAFTA in place for 25 years. Uh, Mexico and Canada are very supportive of that agreement, and we've grown closer economically with those countries, and I think in a number of other dimensions as well. So what happens to the old agreement? What's the transition to the new rules going to be like? There was a lot of concern about making sure that was as seamless as possible, and we made that commitment early on, that we were going to build on what we had before, that we would minimize any disruption to the movement to a new agreement and most importantly for example we had zero tariffs on nearly all products traded among the three of us and we would keep those zero tariffs going forward this deal um, is tremendously important economically to all three of these countries what were the delicacies that you ran into through the negotiation process? Again, primarily focused on the diplomatic and economic conditions. What were things that came up during this conversation that maybe you and your colleagues weren't expecting at the beginning that you had to navigate through? Well, we had a new administration coming in that clearly had a new mandate, a new direction they wanted to take on trade. 
with respect to trade with Mexico and Canada. One of the focuses was on the trade deficit. We have a trade deficit with both of those countries. In the case of Mexico, most of the deficit falls in the automotive sector, both cars and auto parts. And so there was a tremendous focus on what could be done to bring more balanced trade in that particular sector. And so we had to put into rules and make proposals in the negotiations that would arrange uh, to do that. And of course, there was concern in both Mexico and Canada that's a very integrated trinational tri industry. Mm -hmm. Who were the big stakeholders, that you, the shareholders that you worked with in the U.S. federal government? Who were the people that you most closely collaborated with throughout this negotiation process? Well, the core agencies would be the Department of Commerce, which has expertise in telecommunications standards, uh, obviously industrial expertise in, in covering markets. Uh, the Treasury Department had the lead on a new chapter, a first chapter that uh, appeared in this agreement on currency manipulation. Uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, of course, we are huge agricultural traders with both of those countries. Uh, they wanted to preserve and build on that access. Uh, the FDA, other regulatory agencies had a large role. Uh, the State Department, of course, very important for its uh, diplomatic and, and uh, understanding of the countries involved in their priorities. You, the biography uh, of you and Maria on the partnership website says that you joined USTR in 1988. You went there from the Energy Department. You stayed there till you retired this past February. What attracted you about that work on a personal level? What did you like about it so much that you stayed there 32 years? I had come into government after getting a graduate degree in public policy through the, what was then called the Presidential Management Internship Program, now known as the Presidential Management Fellowship. And that is a great way to get a bird's eye view of what the government does. Uh, as you noted, I entered in the Energy Department with a temporary assignment over the U.S. Department, just about what they did. It is really a policy-driven agency where what you are doing is making rules, rules in this case for trade and for commerce. And because you're working with other agencies, with stakeholders in the United States, with foreign governments, you're always being tested on, do those, do those policies work? Are they something that's acceptable? And I found that challenge very, very exciting. Less than a minute, John. What do you miss about not coming in since February? I mean, I guess nobody's really going in at all, but uh, what do you miss about working on the, on the work since you've been out? Well, I think USTR as an agency is not well known. If you've heard of USTR, I think you're a pretty astute student of government. Uh, what we do, I think, is very important. Uh, we have continued to have a very aggressive agenda going forward. We've uh, initiated talks with the United Kingdom, for example. We've proposed talks with Kenya in Africa. And we still have to implement the USMCA. So there's a very full agenda there. And I'm sure they're working hard remotely uh, to get all of that underway and, and in place. John, congratulations to you and Maria on your selection as Sammy's finalists, and congratulations to you on your great career. Appreciate your time today. Well, my pleasure. Thanks very much for the questions. Up next, adding artificial intelligence to the risk management mix. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the safe path to AI implementation in government. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back.
The Department of Justice's latest artificial intelligence applications is to transcribe and translate audio and video. Its contract is part of a bigger effort to implement AI across agencies, but introducing the new technology doesn't come without risks. Dan Chenick is executive director of the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Dan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. This is, uh, the intersection of these two issues is fascinating to me. You have risk management on the one hand, you have artificial intelligence on the other hand, and there are a lot of factors all across government that are driving them together, aren't there, Dan? That's right, and it's important to remember that as the in the example you just cited from an agency, there are many agencies deriving significant benefits from the use of AI. So before you get to the risks, there are the positive elements of adopting artificial intelligence and other emerging technologies, including faster time to serve citizens, uh, reduced cost of operations because you can automate common items, and also more effective outcomes because AI allows uh, workers in government and in industry to really focus on mission and customer service. And then once you sort of understand the nature of the benefits, you can properly understand how risk uh, uh, introduces the picture. And that can be introduced by inaccurate data uh, in a particular case where the data don't reflect the state of the world that the AI system is, is analyzing. Uh, those risks uh, can also include security and privacy risks that are introduced because AI uh, allows uh, people doing analysis to put together data in different ways. So you need to think about building security and privacy protections into the algorithms and into the use of AI. And also the risk of employees being unfamiliar with the nature of the new technologies and the need to educate employees. So a number of things to enable the government to achieve the benefits of AI by managing the risks. So you've got three items there that you just outlined. Two of them are things that it strikes me government's been dealing with already for a long time. It is understood the potential risks involved with uh, data that's not accurate or, or not clean. And it has understood at least that it has to struggle with security and privacy risks for a long time. What does the unfamiliarity with the technology mean for agencies that are introducing AI or other kinds of cutting edge technologies for the first time? What, can, can they apply the same kinds of training and education policies and procedures that have worked for other things? Mm -hmm. Well, AI is as with similar technologies that have automated common processes in the past, AI changes the nature of work. And, Part of the work that our center did uh, last year and the year before with the Partnership for Public Service was to gather experts from government, industry, and academia and understand how is the nature of work changing? What are the tasks that can be automated by AI so that government workers can focus more on their mission and more on serving the customer? And training employees to understand that they don't need to really do data entry for six to eight hours a day, but they can really spend more time analyzing the particular parts of the data that can enable them to serve citizens better is part of the training that goes into adopting AI in a way that makes it successful. Uh, in addition, government employees uh, have processes that they are uh, basically adapting AI into um, security processes under FISMA and FED. Uh, procurement processes, uh, and all of those processes uh, need to be understood in the with how can the technology make government more efficient so that the government can build the uh, the understanding how to use AI into the requirements for those processes. So the the nature of work changing couldn't probably be more obvious than what has happened as a result of coronavirus. I didn't have you come on to talk about coronavirus response, but it strikes me we can't really avoid it when you talk about the 
changing nature of work, Dan. What can we learn from what we're in now and how can we apply that or how can we maybe use it as a fulcrum to push toward what the nature of work is like at some point in the future, maybe make that happen faster? Well, certainly now more than ever in the response and recovery to coronavirus and government's actions across the board, not just in the U.S., but around the world, using advanced technologies to provide service, to improve uh, customer call center operations, to deliver benefits more quickly is, is very important. And the nature of government work will change. The acceleration of that change has only been increased by the events and aftermath uh, and, and current events and, after, and coming aftermath uh, around the response to COVID-19. And so as government thinks about using AI and other emerging technologies effectively, it, it needs to think about how to assess the, the operation of those technologies relative to the benefits and risk. The government of Canada, for example, has introduced a, an important um, assessment tool called the algorithmic impact assessment that the U.S. has looked at and adapted in different ways. Um, to understand that there are not just one kind of risk in AI. There are low risks, median risks, and high risks. And in the um, response and recovery to uh, COVID-19, there are uh, risks around delivering benefits. There are also health risks and the need to protect private and secure information. And so arraying those risks on a scale and understanding what tools to use to respond to benefits and risks in the nature of the mission of the agency that's adapting them uh, is very important. Dan Chenick, the IBM Center for the Business of Government, thanks very much for your insights. Great to have you. Thank you, Francis. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.